Welcome back to the Jewish Reaction. My name is Rabbi Steve Berg, the International Director of NCSY. And I'm Rabbi Yaakov Glasser, the Director of Education for NCSY. Well, we hope everyone had an incredible Yontif, a Yontif pack with joy, a spiritual Yontif, an uplifting Yontif, and uh, I guess it's time to get back to the uh, the daily grind. Yes, you know, one of the things that I thought, uh, Rabbi Berg and I thought that we could reflect on today has to do with Part of the central experience of Simchas Torah, which is, of course, the singing and the dancing with the Torahs and the really inspirational atmosphere and all of the emotion that surrounds the Jewish people really celebrating, culminating a year of uh, reading the Torah, of studying the Torah. Uh, but Rabbi Berg, you know, there's always a, a, a dimension, a component of that experience that, for those of us who deal with teens, uh, really is a, a cause for reflection. Yeah, it's uh, something that comes up every year around Simchas Torah. It also comes up around Purim, based obviously on on our calendar, uh, and that is teen drinking. And I guess it's it's you know we're talking a little bit about teen drinking, but it's really just in general people um, drinking too much and um, sometimes leading to to many different problems. Yes, it's certainly something. Substance abuse is something that uh, many many teens struggle with, and. Even if the statistics in our firm community uh, may not be as overwhelming as other communities, there is no question, if one speaks to the experts, that this is an issue that many teens do struggle with and something that us as adults, as rabbis, as educators, as parents, uh, really need to be thinking about in terms of the type of environments we are constructing within our shuls and within our homes, as well as the messages that we're sending about the role of alcohol in Jewish life. So I have to tell you a story, if it's uh, if it's okay. Uh, it's story. I, I was in Los Angeles. I came out, it was my first job as a regional director. I had been involved in NCSY for nine years as assistant director. Uh, and I came to regional director in Los Angeles, and uh, my first Simchus Torah out there, my first Simchus Torah, I was kind of out and about and seeing where the teens went and stuff, and there was one area, one uh, major place that the teens went, um, and there was some serious drinking, and, and, and to the, the uh, I don't say which institution it was, but the institution's credit inside, there was very labored dancing, but outside there was an unbelievable amount of teens drinking and doing all kinds of stuff, to the point where actually an ambulance had to be called. One of the teens um, had had way too much and uh, had to be taken to the hospital. And the next year, and the next year, I'll tell you what we did, and we did this in the next four years that I was in Los Angeles, and my wife and I decided that the, that the teens needed some place to go. Uh, because I think that's one of the issues. You know, pe- teens, and, and in general, people find trouble when there's nothing else to do, right? Absolutely. So uh, what we did was we uh, we opened up our home from about 9 p.m. till about 2 a.m., really for a long period of time. Um, we brought in all kinds of food, and we uh, basically had over 500 people that used to come by, uh, teens, young adults, all kinds of people used to come through the home. Um, and it was like a safe place, a safe place. No alcohol, wouldn't allow alcohol, wouldn't let anyone hang outside, have alcohol. Um, and it was really, really important. I think that kind of shaped my, my approach to this, which is, um, you know, we don't want teens drinking. We don't want uh, kids, you know, getting involved in that stuff. But then, So what do they do? Exactly. In, in many communities, whenever there are issues with teens and various activities that they're involved with, whether a community becomes concerned, I know we've gotten calls about communities that have issues with kids hanging out in the park on Shabbos afternoon involved in activities that are, are certainly not healthy and, and not spiritually beneficial. It's so crucial that we don't just focus on what they're not supposed to be doing, not the not just the, the sur meirah, but that to create a oasis of asetov, of something positive that they can be doing. And it's remarkable how most teens, most teens, with very few exceptions, if they have a vibrant, exciting, welcoming place to be, uh, they're not going to drift to things that are uh, inappropriate. And sometimes, you know, our approach is just to sort of 
ban things and, and expel them from the, the area. And, and I think that this story with your house is just, it's, it's remarkable. You know, I remember in my community, uh, there was a, a shul where there were a number of couches in the lobby and the teenagers used to hang out on the couches. And one of the rabbis came up to me and he told me, uh, you know, I have great news. We had all these teenagers. They always hang out on the couches in the lobby and they weren't in shul. So, so we solved the problem. So I asked him, you know, how'd you solve the problem? So he says to me, we got rid of the couches. And so now the teens are gone. So I said, well, are the teens in the sanctuary? No, the teens are not in the sanctuary. So now instead of having the teens in the lobby where they can be supervised and, and have a place to be, at least it's a positive atmosphere, now, now they're not in the shul at all. And I think that's something that we really have to consider, that if we're going to make this inquisitorial experience and the Purim experience and the shul experience in general uh, one that is, is more controlled, that we're offering them something overwhelmingly more positive. And I think that's that's remarkable. 500 people through your house. I mean, your yeah, wife there must was, be... Uh, no, yeah, she was, she, was, she was amazing. And I think that's a great point. One of the issues all the time is that, you know, everyone's just telling you, Judaism, unfortunately, is looked at as a religion of what you can't do. And we need to reverse that and tell people what they can do. And you know, that's a great story about pulling out the couches. You know, so so what did they do then? Um, and you know, we also have to be vigilant in our communities. You know, you take something. I, I've seen this many times, and it's, it's uh, scary um, when you have a shalom zacher. You know, shalom zacher. Um, it, it's late. You know, it's ten, eleven o'clock late. People are coming and going. They're, they're having a little time, this and that. And you know, people are not particularly watching the alcohol around the kids. And, and by the way, sometimes even the adults um, should watch uh, their intake a, a drop better. Uh, but just in general, this you know, you have to just keep, kind of keep an eye on this uh, in terms of places. You know, when I when I joined our shul, the Young Israel Paseya Clifton, as the Rav, about uh, eight years ago, so my predecessor, Rabbi Chaim Wasserman, had established the shul as a dry shul, that no alcohol was permitted in any shul functions at all. And when I came to take over, so a number of members of the shul felt, uh, what a wonderful opportunity to try to transition out of that policy. And so they approached myself and the president of the shul, who was uh, Dr. Scott Goldberg uh, from YU, and they said to us, could we reevaluate, could we reconsider this policy? Because Scott was a, a new president, I was a new Rav. And Scott and I thought about it, and we invited Dr. David Pelkovitz to come to a shul board meeting and address the issue. And he sat together with us, and he informed us. You know, it's interesting that you bring up Shalom Zachars. He told us that when you interview uh, people who develop substance abuse problems with alcohol, that many, many, many in the firm community will tell you that this problem began, that their first exposure uh, to these substances were at Kiddushim and Shuls and were at Shalom Zachars at people's homes because it's not adequately supervised. And he, he advised really strongly that while there's certainly room uh, to create a shul environment that alcohol is supervised in a healthy way, that uh, a dry shul is, is a wonderful message to the youth that we don't need this type of substance in order to enjoy ourselves and be social and and be spiritual. And to reverse that policy would be a big mistake. And, and the board unanimously agreed to adopt his uh, recommendation and I, I thought it was a great moment because it, it wasn't a top-down, like, this is the Psach Halacha or this is going to be the policy of the shul. It was a much more educational experience where a group of people got together and educated ourselves on what the dangers were and, and how important it was to send that message to the youth. Yeah, I, you know, I, I also daven in, uh, quote-unquote, a dry shul, you know, what they call a dry shul. I daven Ortora and Bergenfield or Sovlowski and... Uh, also, we the same policy, but you know it's it's interesting. You know, I think back to my youth when I was growing up in my my father's shul, 
And uh, I remember the Daily Minion. You know, the Daily Minion would be early in the morning. And I remember, you know, some of the older men there who were like Holocaust survivors from Poland, the whole thing, you know, sitting around. And they would have like a shot and a kichel or something like that. And, you know, I think that's that's probably okay, you know, yeah. if, if it's in that context. Uh, I think that, that you know, that uh, the reason some shuls have gone dry is not necessarily, you know, to prevent that from happening. But I think it's more, um, you know, and, and but those guys, you never saw them take two or three shots. You saw them take one shot, you know, warm the body, whatever they were doing, and, you know, and to go out uh, into the cold or but um, I, th- I think it's really the uh, repetitive and this uh, this this kind of uh, training. I just think it's a big big problem in our community that has to be addressed. It has to be addressed, like what you're saying in terms of schools. I think also schools. You know, I think some of them have done a good job in that. Certainly, there's been a lot more education, uh, both in schools as well as in communities at large. Uh, certainly, I think the vigilance uh, has increased. I think a lot of organizations, I know the OU, in preparation for these types of seasons has done in the past uh, many wonderful campaigns uh, to enhance people's uh, perspective and and just in general that people should be on the lookout, that this is something to to consider. I, I think one of the reasons why Simchas Torah and Purim become such flashpoints is there's just so much chaos in the shul in general during these moments. Like it's just, it's a very w- kind of wild, open environment and there's there's much less supervision than the rest of the year. You know, I know that one of the shuls in Bergen County, in Teaneck, uh, the Rav was so mocked that there'd be no alcohol on Simchas Torah that he actually, you know, the custom is to duchen on Simchas Torah in Shachris, because we're concerned that the Kohanim might be inebriated in Musaf. This Rav was, was so confident that he had eradicated uh, any any form of alcohol from the Simchas Torah experience, he put duchening back into Musaf. Uh, to send a message to people that on a, on a halachic level, on a communal level, that things change. Look, there's no question that alcohol does play a role in Jewish life, that yayin is something that was offered in the Mizbeach, it's something that is part of Kiddush and Havdalah, is part of almost every life cycle event. Uh, there's no question that the, the, the certainly Pesach, the mitzvah of Dalit Kosos, there certainly is an element of wine drinking appropriate on Purim. There's no question that it plays a role, but the message of Yayin in Judaism is in elevating that which is physical, is in endowing it and infusing it with spirituality. And if there is a danger that that's going to be abused, then there's also no question that that abstinence is uh, is preferential to abuse. I think Purim also, uh, in certain people's minds, is, is much worse uh, because, A, you have the whole Suda and, you know, the back and forth, what type of mitzvah there is in, in terms of alcohol, but... Um, it's more, it's probably a bigger problem because people drive. And I think that, um, certainly, you know, it's one thing to deal with these things in shops where a person is not going to get into a car. But, you know, if you're dealing, um, with any type of driving or anything, I mean, you know, we all know tragic stories that have happened over the years. Um, we have to be insanely, insanely vigilant and, and make sure that people, um, to the point where even if someone's going to have anything, their key should be taken away or they should put them someplace. Uh, we we cannot allow it because there, there's so many children on the street and there, there's so much going on. Um, we have a responsibility as a community to take it seriously. Yeah, it's certainly something to think about in the uh, in the wake of the Simchas Torah and all all of the Chagim as we as we take on a new year. Yeah, and as we uh, come to uh, Shabbos Parshas Bereshis, <laughs> we hope that uh, everyone will uh, drink a lot of grape juice. <laughs> And uh, all kinds of other uh, all other stuff like that. Okay, we are going to uh, break now, and um, we have Maury Litwack who's coming up with a 
really amazing professional, Estee Goldschmidt, um, who runs a program. She's a director of advocacy training, and uh, she runs a program basically to train people to get involved in the political process, which is really important uh, for us as Jews. i got to tell you, uh, having uh, two weeks ago spent uh, time in uh, in Berlin, in Germany, in, in those areas, getting involved in political process, especially when stuff like Briss Mueller is on the line, uh, I can't tell you how important that kind of stuff is. So uh, stay tuned for uh, more Litwack. Uh, this is Maury Litwack, OU Director of Political Affairs. I am giving you here a little taste of uh, Jewish politics and policy and advocacy, uh, all, everything from campaigns uh, to domestic policy, such as uh, school choice and tuition reduction, to foreign policy, uh, a little, little, little something for each week. Uh, this week, we're privileged to have uh, in the studio with us Esty uh, Goldschmidt, who is uh, just started um, with the Orthodox Union as the director of advocacy training, uh, and I'm going to let her talk a little bit about what that is. Um, but first, uh, she has an interesting background, uh, which which I think is interesting. I, I don't know, depending on where you're from. Uh, so welcome, Esty. Hi, Maury. So what is what is your background? What makes you so interesting? What makes me interesting <laughs> is that I grew up in Moscow, Russia. My father was the chief rabbi, and they moved there in 89 when the Iron Curtain went up. That must have been something. <laughs> I was too young to remember, but they say it was. After graduating from high school, I spent a year and a half in a seminary in Gateshead, England, after which I came to the U.S., and I studied at Yeshiva University, and I just completed my master's in medieval Jewish history. Ah, very cool. Uh, yeah. And so we met, we met, or I met Esty originally in, in Washington, um, uh, when, when she was working with, with her father and others on the, um, the Shlita issue, uh, in, in Holland. What, 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 tell us a little bit about that. Maury, it was a pleasure meeting you then. No, not about that part. <laughs> tell us about the, tell us about the, um, the ritual slaughter. What was, it, what was going on? In Holland, they were going to pass a ban on ritual slaughter. Most say it was directed against the Muslims, but it was gonna, going to affect the Jewish community as well. And the Conference of European Rabbis, which my father was involved in, took it upon themselves, along with the Orthodox Union, to go to Washington and to pressure everyone who had connections to Holland and foreign policy to reverse this ban. And as a result of our lobbying mission, the ban was reversed. That's fantastic. It's big I, news. Was, I was so inspired by that trip. Yeah, it's, it, and so, and, and really, uh, yeah, Essie has a history of sort of, sort of advocacy and working on these issues. So you joined, you joined the, the union. What are, your, what, are sort of your, what are your goals? What is this advocacy training in general? What are you looking to do? So I'm very honored to have been on the team of the expanding political advocacy department of the Orthodox Union. Ideally, every member of the Jewish community in the United States should understand the importance of public advocacy. Within two years, we would love for the, each community in the U.S. to have members in the community who have relationships with elected officials who can represent their community's needs and interests and affect change in legislation when necessary. OU Advocacy was established to provide all members of the Orthodox community, be it seniors, rabbis, lay leaders, collegiate students, high school students, with the necessary tools to engage and successfully navigate the world of public advocacy. That's the goal. That's the goal. If we could. So what a lot of people say, look, it's it's. People, say, I run into people all the time who say, "I know how to do this. I met, I, I met, uh, you know, I met this politician. I met that politician. It's all the same. I know how to do it. It's it, you just, you know, you just gotta, you gotta speak their language, and that's it." I mean, I remember I met one person in particular who told me that, "Oh, you know, if they want, they just, you know, they speak to the speaker and they speak to, 
um, you know, the Senate majority leader, and that's it, and they can get any bill they want passed. And, they, and, I, and it was a remarkable thing to see, I guess, either people's perception of what they think they know or um, or, or, or what they end up really don't not, not knowing. What's the What have you found to be sort of the difference between someone who's informed and someone who's uninformed? Maury, that's a great question. The difference between an informed advocate and uninformed advocate is the difference between an amateur and a professional. It's the difference between getting the desired legislation passed and between, you know, pushing away an elected official. In your book on lobbying, you wrote that it's just like a game of chess. It's someone who either knows the game and knows how to play wisely and predicts the moves, or someone who just relies on one on the queen and says, well, I know this person and I'll just talk to them. You know, one of my colleagues, Jesse, told me that he took a group of senior citizens to Washington to lobby on behalf of Israel, and they were untrained. And although they were wishing well, they came in with this aggressive attitude, and they practically screamed at the congressman they were meeting with. Needless to say, had they received proper training in advance, the meeting would have been more successful and productive. Oh, okay. That's very that's very interesting. Um, so, so you would consider yourself a young person, correct? Some people say that. Yeah, some people say it. So, um, how 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 critical is it? Uh, you know, we in the Jewish community we talk about getting the next generation involved. Um, there have been some fascinating studies which look into uh, the actual interest of, of of the community of the younger people. I guess people under twenty five, even uh, in their thirties, and in their involvement in Israel and their activity. I know APAC put a tremendous amount of time into cultivating that. I know now NCSY. Uh, is, is is spending a great deal uh, of that time. Um, we're going to be working on something with with Rifka Abbey. I know who's 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 no stranger to JM and the AM. Uh, and and I think that the um, uh, there's a lot to be said for that. That what are your sort of your thoughts for um, the the next generation? How do you get them involved in this type of activity? Maury, it's not just important for the next generation to be involved. It's crucial. There must be an understanding of the impact we as a community can have on the legislative process. There must be an understanding of the power grassroots organizations can have in shaping public advocacy and discourse, policymakers and courts to assist the Jewish communities on important issues, be it education, the U.S.-Israel relationship, civil rights, and many other issues. Our youth is the future leadership of the Jewish community, and if they understand the importance of engaging in the political process and that as much as we invest, we will receive in return, that will, that will serve to only benefit the Jewish community. And in terms of how to do it, we have to target them where it's most effective. For example, Rivka Abbey with the OU, we just spent the morning scheduling meetings on Capitol Hill. That's a program for high school students, which is going to take over 200 students, train them for an entire day, and then take them to Washington to experience it firsthand. We're also running a fellowship, hopefully this January, with Rabbi Naaman in Oakland, California. We're going to run events and fellowships and advocacy days in synagogues and on campuses, both for Younger people and for older people as well. To be there, for, right? To be there where, where they where they where they happen to be. Exactly. Um, so so I want to shift a little bit because we have some more time. The, the uh, um, you know you have the sort of unique experience of of, of uh, growing up in uh, outside of the U.S. Um, and and I think that there's uh, I'm sure you've run into a number of people who who uh, don't have the same uh, civic voice as we do. Uh, can you share any of those experiences? 
Maury, that is definitely true. <laughs> on my Facebook page, I on the newsfeed, there was a huge sign in Russian which said, Americans are a strange people. It's two months, two elections, and they still don't know who their president will be. So coming from a place like Russia, where, you know, officially it's sort of a democracy, but the the voice of the individual is definitely not as effective as it is in the United States. I understand not to take these things for granted, and I understand how important it is to take advantage of of our voice and of the impact we can have and use it to to better um, life for Jewish citizens in America. Yeah, it's very it's very important. Um, so I want to I want to um, I want to sort of just end with uh, with something that we like to do here, which is uh, a little note. I always, uh, a little note, a little something interesting, something funny, something weird. I don't know something that people remember and say say, oh, I heard Esty Goldschmidt. And this is what she had to say. Do you have anything else like that that you just want to sort of end with? So I thought to end with something slightly more educational. <laughs> My mother's a teacher. <laughs> no one, no one ever goes with weird. Okay. <laughs> but being that my background is in marketing and not so much in politics and that I come from a country and also in Europe, the government subsidizes and pays for secular education in private Jewish schools. It was surprising to learn how state government works, that the education budget is not allocated by the federal government, but rather in each state alone. And I learned that that provides a tremendous amount of advantages as well as challenges to the Jewish community because it's easier to reach out to a state senator or elected official. But at the same time, it only affects the situation in your state. So if you leave, live in Teaneck, but you send New Jersey and you send your kids to school in New York, it's a whole different set of politicians you want to be talking yeah, to. Yeah, it's a very, it's a broad range. But, we, they need, yes. they need a lot of training. We need, we need to train people, get them out there. That is definitely important. And we are working on phenomenal programs. And I hope that within a year, everyone will know in America that OU is tuition. Well, we need we need everyone we need everyone in America. To, in, we need we need Jewish citizens in America to get out there and vote and and be educated and take relations with politicians, do all these important things uh, that so many many people are involved with. And uh, it's so doable. It it yeah. is it is indeed. Uh, all right, well, thank you very much. This is Maury Litwack, the OU's director of political affairs, uh, giving you a little taste of politics. Welcome back. And uh, as we said, this is really a time for for new beginnings because we're going into uh, Parshas Baratius and uh, Rabbi Glasser. Would you like to give us some thoughts? By the way, everyone should know that Rabbi Glasser is not only the educational director of um, International NCSY, but he is also a very beloved uh, pulpit rabbi in the Young Israel Passaic Clifton, which is right now in the middle of building a brand new building. And if anyone would like to donate, <laughs> you can seek him out. Or if you would just like to come hear him speak, and then the new building should be done by the next... Uh, Hopefully in the next year or so. In the next year, okay. And we're looking forward to that because uh, Reg Lasher is really, I think, one of the best uh, Darshanim out there. Thank you, Rabbi Berg, for setting up those expectations. Yes, we want to keep uh, them very high. But, Please don't uh, disappoint. You know, Shabbos Beratius always resonates with NCSY because we're all about new beginnings, uh, new beginnings for people who are just finding uh, their beginning in the world of Torah Judaism, and new beginnings for people who may have grown up with Torah Judaism all their life, but are they themselves in need of a of a new start. And I once, I wanted to share a quick insight. I once heard in the name of Rosh Shlomo Zaman Orbach, a very beautiful idea. You know, we have two Chagim that revolve around the Torah. One is the Chag of Shavuos, and the other is the Chag of Simchas Torah. 
And Roshlomo Zalman asked the following question, and that is that there is so much lead up to Shavuos. We know that we count each and every day from the experience of Pesach. We have the entire Sfiras Omer, and we relive by staying up all night in the flowers in the shul and all the different elements of Kabbalah Torah. We really re-experience that whole unbelievable moment at Mamad Har Sinai. So Shlomo Zalman asks, why is it that all of the singing and dancing and elation and all of the celebratory dimensions of relating to the Torah are not emoted on Shavuos and rather wait until Simchas Torah? Why don't we take the Torahs out of the Aron? We've just received the Torah and dance with the Torah, make circles and, and have all of these wonderful, vibrant uh, activities. And he gives an answer that I think is so poignant and extremely telling in terms of the period of time that we're entering into now with Shabbos Bereshis. And that is that Rosh Zalman says that in Judaism, we don't celebrate receiving something. We celebrate when we do something with it. That receiving the Torah on Shavuos is certainly a level, it's certainly an amazing, amazing experience, and the Jewish people would not be who they are without the Torah. But what's really a cause for singing and dancing is not getting the Torah, but it's what you do with the Torah. And I think that really captures this uh, feeling that we all have in the aftermath of Yom Noraim, especially this year, where the configuration of the calendar gave us Shabbos, Yantif, Shabbos, Yantif, Shabbos, Yantif. And we're coming off of such a season of inspiration. We're coming off of so many moments of, of Kabbalah Satorah in so many aspects of our lives, in, in, our, in our commitments to tshuva, in our commitments to family, in our commitments to how to relate to our uh, belongings and the, the messages of Sukkot. And spirituality. And now, you know, coming into the world of Shabbos Bereshis, we're about to enter a full seven-day week. A full seven-day week where Shachris will be a regular Shachris, where we'll all be at, at, at work for the entire duration of the week, where the kids will be back at school for the remainder of the week. And, and the real test of the impact of Yomim Noraim is not really what happens on the days itself. The real test is in what we do with it, what we accomplish with it. And so I think the the first steps of Shabbos Bereshis is really to sit around with the family and recognize that everybody had their ups and downs through the entire Yontif period. There were moments of, of real high points. There were moments of, of real struggle and challenge. Uh, there were difficult meals. There were great meals. There were wonderful times in shul. There were challenging times in shul. But now we're starting the year. And now we're going to have this nice stretch uh, all the way to Hanukkah. And to really begin to go around the table and ask everyone, okay, now it's game time. What are we changing? What are we doing? What is going to be our beracious for the year? What's going to be our new beginning? It's not just Bali Tshuva that have a new beginning. We're all Bali Tshuva. And I think that, you know, I know for our family, as we sit around the table this Shabbos, this is something that, that, that we're going to focus on, that every person should have at least one area of their life where when the whole world of inspiration is over, now we ask ourselves, what are we going to do with it? And with that, we can really make changes in ourselves. And with those changes, that becomes something to really celebrate. Awesome. Thank you. Great. Um, I actually heard a different explanation. I'll tell you just real quickly, uh, which is uh, Shavuos. Uh, the question is why we don't just uh, do simple Torah on Shavuos, right? So you say, oh, because we, we start Bereshis here. But the truth is, Yushalmi says we should do it every three years in a cycle. We could have started the week after Shavuos and finished on Shavuos. So I heard it in, in the name of the Magid uh, as a parable. And he says, he says the following. He says that uh, there once was a king who wanted to marry, uh, who couldn't have any children. 
And, uh, of course, it's perfect for NCSY because we're always talking about kings and princes and stuff like that. Anyway, so he went all around, couldn't have any children. Finally, he met a wise rabbi, and the rabbi told him, he said, in, in a year from now, you will have a baby girl on one condition. She can't see any men until literally she's underneath the chuppah. Fine, he makes a deal. He's desperate to have a child, has a baby girl, puts her on an island. She's served by all women, you know, tutors and guards and, and bakers and all women. And finally, he wants to marry her off. So he puts a proclamation out that I'm marrying off my daughter. Uh, and princes come from all around the land. They enter this room. And the king says, okay, I want to marry off my daughter. It's one condition. You can't see her till underneath the chuppah. So sure enough, every, you know, every prince says, she must be hideously ugly. must be some problem. They all start to back out of the room till there's one prince left in the room. And he says, fine, you know, I'll marry her. Getting close to the wedding, he is terrified, right? Because obviously she, there must be some kind of issue with her physically. He gets, he sees her in the chuppah and she looks beautiful. Oh, it must be some, maybe she can't talk. There's got to be some kind of issue there. He winds up at the wedding feast. She seems very smart, very bright, very intelligent. He said, but she's got to be like an axe murderer. There's got to be something going on. There's got to be some reason I couldn't I couldn't see her. A couple of months later, he comes back to the king and says, I'd like to have another feast. He said, what are you talking about? I made you a beautiful party. He says, now you don't understand. At that party, I couldn't appreciate it because I didn't know what I was getting myself into. But now that I know what I was getting myself into, now I really want to have another feast so I can totally celebrate. On Shavuos, when we said Nasa Vanishma, we said we would do what God told us. We knew it was going to be good because God gave it to us and God is always good. But we didn't really know, right? And that is, I think, where the custom a little bit comes from, to stay up all night learning. The second you get it, you have to see what it is. You stay up all night learning. By a couple months later, by the time you hit the time of Simchus Torah, then we know what the Torah is and then we could fully celebrate and we could dance around the Torah. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. Yeah, and I thank God. And it's good that we're giving all this uh, Simchus Torah Torah a couple of days after Simchus Torah. Just so everyone keep in mind for next year, just click on us again next year so you can be uh, you you can all be ready. the Simchus Torah you need. And then, of course, we have to reformulate these ideas for Shavuos so we can play up Shavuos. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm going to knock Shavuos. In my family, they know. Every Shavuos, every Simchus Torah, I give over that to our Torah because I just I think it's uh, so beautiful. But, you know, you're right. I mean, you know, we, we did so many things. I mean, we, we, we almost forget about it because we went through Sukkot, we went through Simchus Torah. But, you know, in Yom Kippur, we sat there and we really talked about how we were going to change our lives. And in essence, you know, that's everything you're saying is, you know, we're coming up to Shabbos Barashas. You know, everyone probably sat in shul and said, I'm going to learn with my kids more. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to do all this stuff. Well, okay. You know, now, now's the, now the time. It's one thing. Great. So you, you went to shul and sukkahs. Great. You shook your love and Esther. Great. You sat in the sukkah. It's all, you know, you were in like the wave of things. And now we hit Barashas where, okay, this is what you said. Seven days a week. We're back to the monotony of life. You know, how many of those things are going to make it through? Yeah, you know, I always believe that in Shabbos Bereshis is the is the answer to that question because you know God could have just started the Torah saying, "Look, I created the world," and the fact that He elucidates what is created on each and every individual day tells you that ultimately the act of creation always needs a plan, and always needs a structure, and always needs a uh, a mahalach. And and in terms of structure, I'll tell you something something really unbelievable because I have an incredible wife and she's a, she's an amazing person. My wife Rachel, we actually and I can't believe I you know I grew up in Brooklyn. I never thought I'd be doing this. My wife grew up in L.A. and maybe it'd be more appropriate. But we actually had a family meeting. <laughs> we sat down at before the Suda. We started the Suda. Whatever time it was, start fifteen twenty minutes before. We had a family meeting. Okay, my oldest son um, Ari was fifteen. Was the assigned scribe. For the meeting, he was the secretary of the family, and uh, what we did was we went through every single kid, and everything that the single kid had to say at least one to three things that they were going to take on um, this coming year, 
right? And literally uh, went, you know, went around the table from youngest to oldest. I mean, my three-year-old, I think my wife suggested she would try to use a, a, a better voice um, and not scream. <laughs> but uh, in general, they all, and they all came up, I, I thought it was like a really real thing. They had to like really think about things. Um, and then we washed, served the food, and then we came up with family goals all together. Now, what's amazing about this was um, Motsi Yom Kippur, my son Aryeh, sat down and typed it all out. And uh, I have to edit it a little bit, but there's like a, a Berg family memo, <laughs> which literally lists about approximately three things by each kid's name and then a family um, thing, you know, coming from like a 10 My wife calls it the 10-minute tidy on Moti Shabbos. She sets the clock on the oven, you know. And, but but this is what you were saying. You know, people need structure. You know, for us to just sit, I feel like, you know, you get, you get in Yom Kippur and you, you clap the al-chates and the same thing as last year, but you're, you know, you're serious in the moment. And then come Shabbos Barashas, okay, what, what did you carry over from Yom Kippur to Shabbos Barashas? What is going to be different about you this year? You know, that, that's an amazing suggestion. And there's, there's no reason why everyone can't try that. I mean, it, it sounds so simple, but so profound. And really, it just takes a willingness for everyone to sit around the table and open up a little bit. I mean, that's really what, what it's about. Yeah, yeah. And you could do that this weekend. You could do that before. Yeah, I'd say it doesn't have to be Yom Kippur. Yeah. In, in fact, we're, we're, you know, we're going to check the bylaws here. We're trying. We're, we're kind of doing this as we go. But I think that we had basically talked about. Um, we had talked about like every Rosh Chodesh, kind of sitting down and having a look at that. And, and I felt for a long time, to be honest with you, and we should talk about this in another program more at length. Um, I have, you know, people have financial planning. They'll sit down. They'll talk of finances. And they'll have meetings, stuff like that. You know, rabbis should almost have like spiritual planning, right? Where around Elul time, you sit with your rabbi and you talk about what your goals are this year. And it should almost be like a form you fill out like you do for finances, you know, about how you want to be a better person. Because, you know, when, when you just think about things in the, in the heat of the day or you're all, you know, Yom Kippur, whatever it is, and, or, or the Yom Tovim or Sukkot, you're on the spiritual highest simplest Torah. And you're like, I'm going to learn Torah this year. And then you're right. Then Shabbos Barashas comes. And like, yeah, I got a nap. I got to eat cholent. I got, you know. Yeah, you know, it's funny when I was, when I was going through the Vidui on Yom Kippur, this past Yom Kippur, and I'm looking at this list of the Alchates, I remember saying to myself, I really should read this at the beginning of Elul. So I know what it is that I'm supposed to be working on, uh, as the time, as the time goes on. Like, here's the plan. Here's the, the collection of, of issues that we struggle with. And here are the things that, why am I looking at this list for the first time on, on Kol Nidre night or at Mincha on Erev Yom Kippur? Why aren't I looking at this list, you know, months before and saying to myself, what is my plan for, for each one of these things? You know, that's a fascinating suggestion yeah. of, of spiritual planning and how much time and effort we put into our, our financial plans and that we're goal oriented and that we have a game plan of how to deal with it. And you know, there's, there is an element of unpredictability with financial planning also. And that's true with spiritual planning too. Sure. Things could come sure. up that are, that are unexpected and, and unanticipated and those have to be addressed as well. But that doesn't mean that spiritual growth shouldn't be something that's, you know, that's, that's really thought through. Yeah, but that, that, you know, that's what goals are. Goals are goals. The goals are not like, you know, that, this is not setting 100%. Nothing's 100% in this world, you know? If you want to lose weight, they set goals. You want to work out, you set goals. You want to accomplish in life, you set, you know, so for spirituality, it's gotta be, it's gotta be the same thing. And then if you come up to next Yom Kippur and you whip out your list, you take it out and you're saying, hey, oh, you know what? I was really good on one, three, and six, but you know, I don't know, on two, four. So yeah, okay. So this year, you know what you gotta plug away on. And that's, that's what life is all about. 100%. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I just think it's an important thing. I actually had a Rebbe. I'll, I'll actually close 
with this before we move on to some of the other segments we have, um, or Dovin Miller, um, who, uh, was, uh, used to, in the Gritz Kolel in Herzl, now he's in Yeshiva University, he's, uh, the Mashkirch there, and, uh, he actually talked about ha- having one of these spiritual books, he actually had one, where you would write down stuff at the end of each day, that you did, you didn't, etc. It's important, it's really important to do. Okay, we have some incredibly exciting stuff, uh, coming up. Uh, first of all, we have Rabbi Jack Abramowitz, um, who I've mentioned many times is, I think, one of the great treasures of the Jewish people. He's written great books. Anyone that doesn't have his books should go out and get them. Um, they're really incredible. Uh, but he is interviewing Rabbi Rob Shur, who's the uh, manager and, and who runs uh, YUTorah.org. YUTorah.org is one of, I think, the, the, the most precious jewels of the Jewish people uh, in terms of, of Torah uh, putting up tens and tens and tens of thousands of shiurim. Um, I went on today and I was looking up uh, my Rebbe of uh, Rav um, Shlita, and uh, I think he had over 3,500 shirim up there. So uh, I, I didn't go through all of them, but uh, in fact, I was in Moti, Motim Kipper. He had a shir 10:15 at night. By the next morning, it was up. So they they do a tremendous job there. Uh, and also, we're going to have our our kosher uh, segment, Kashrus, uh, which is given by Rabbi Eliyahu Farrell. This is actually part three, uh, and this is topics in maintaining a kosher home. Right? Do all foods need supervision? Um, do do help in the home maids need supervision? Things like. Like that, uh, it's going to be very, very exciting. Stay tuned. Hi, welcome back to Torah on the Web. My name is Jack Abramowitz. I'm the Torah content editor of OU Torah. That's OUTorah.org. And today I'm speaking with my colleague Rabbi Robert Schur, and he's the manager of YU Torah. That's YUTorah.org. Welcome, Rabbi Schur. Thank you very much for having me. It was great to be here. So I think if our if our listeners have visited YU Torah before, I think they'll will have seen that it's one of the really just most replete with uh, sources and and content. It's a very very meaty site with with hundreds upon hundreds, if not thousands upon thousands of shiurim. And I wanted to know if you could give us a little insight into the the history and background and, and how YU Torah got to be what it is today. Uh, so it started uh, a little over ten years ago. There were a, a number of independent websites that were being run by YU students, um, either for shirim of their Rebbe or for other things that they particularly want to post to the public. Uh, and really Mark Spivak, who used to work for YU back then, uh, decided to bring them all under one umbrella and uh, essentially started YUTorah.org. Uh, and back then, it was really a very small site, very much limited to the daily shirim that were being uh, given in Ishii University. Um, and over the years, it's been handed over to a number of different people to manage it. Uh, and then I took it on about five years ago, and since then uh, I've been expanding it and trying to make it much more of a um, of a general Torah website for the entire world. Mm-hmm. So, what has that entailed in order to make it more universal? Um, well, we've done a, a lot of work in trying to make the site as technology uh, as uh, up to date as possible in terms of the latest technology. Trying to uh, make it a very user friendly site trying to make it a very um, intuitive site to use so people can just have a very easy and simple listening experience. Uh, we've also made a very big effort in trying to get more shirim from uh, other sources, uh, including yeshivos and uh, seminaries in Israel, uh, different high schools, different synagogues around the United States, um, to really give uh, our listeners as broad of a of, uh, of a uh, choice as possible to uh, learn Torah from. Uh, you know, we really want to want to showcase all the Torahs being taught and learned in the uh, Orthodox Jewish community, 
and uh, really want to make that available to the entire world. Can you give our listeners an idea of the scope of content that you have available on YU Torah? Sure. I mean, just a, a very rough number. Uh, we've got about 62,000 shirim and articles on the website right now. Um, we add about 300 a week, uh, give or take, depending on the time of year. Obviously, uh, in the summer, it's a little quieter. Uh, around the holiday time, it's a little busier. Um, and uh, we're constantly updating. The way it works is that we allow users uh, who are pre-approved to upload Shiram from where they are. So we have about a 1,000 uh, users around the world uh, uploading Shiram to the website, um, and literally around the world. We have people all over the, country, all over the United States, uh, in Canada, in Europe, in, uh, in Israel, obviously, um, and so we really try to make it as global as possible. We're, we're reaching out to other communities and other, um, other countries to uh, constantly expand the scope, um, and uh, it's really been a constantly growing process. I mean, it's almost exponential in its growth. That's fantastic, and with so many people uploading from so many different sources, I mean, just the variety and the the breadth of content is is really staggering. How do you decide, given so much content on your site, what to feature? What what ends up on the the front page when people first visit? Uh, That's a good question. I mean, we do have a uh, committee that gets involved in those kind of decisions. Um, We have some criteria, but it's more or less, um, shirim that we think will be of interest to anybody, uh, because we have different types of shirim. We have shirim that uh, are a series of daily shirim that if you're not following day to day, you might not appreciate. We have uh, shirim that are on topics that are a little more, um, uh, a little more esoteric. So we try to feature on the front page things that we think anybody with any background, be it a big, complete beginner or a advanced yeshiva student, would really appreciate and get something out of. Mm-hmm. And is there any feature or series or speaker in particular where if someone would ask you, like, you know, what should I go to YU Torah? What's different there that I'm not going to find anything else? Is there anything that you specifically draw their attention that's a, to? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I think that what we offer, I don't want to say we're unique in this, but I think what we try very much to do and to offer is to give anybody and everyone a chance to have a serious Yeshiva education. What we're trying to do is open up Yeshiva University and, uh, by uh, extension, our affiliated institutions um, to be Yeshivos without walls, uh, in essence. Uh, so anybody from anywhere can come along and learn any subject. If you want to learn Smicha topics, be it you know the laws of Kashrut, or the laws of Shabbat, or the laws of uh, the life cycle, that's available to you. If you want to pick up a uh, Daf Yomi series or a Mishnah Yomi series, uh, that's available to you if you want to learn uh, Kabbalah, if, you want, if you're a beginner and you want some, some beginners uh, to intro to Judaism classes. It's really, you know, there's everything and anything on that site. Uh, and what we've been doing, what we've been trying to take a, uh, put a major focus on in our development over the past uh, couple of years is trying to optimize the user experience and really trying to make it as easy as possible for people to find what they're looking for. Uh, it's not an easy task. It's, it's something that we're not dealing with alone. A lot of other... Uh, both Torah websites and general content websites are dealing with this question. It's a great um, uh, conflict when you have more content to make it accessible and to make it intuitive gets increasingly exponentially harder. Uh, yeah, I've been told this is a general question in the, uh, the, the Internet world at large. Uh, so we're doing our best. You know, As I said, there's more Torah being uploaded 
uh, on a regular basis, and there is time to listen to it. So I don't think anybody will uh, ever run out of things they want to listen to or, or read uh, or download uh, at their leisure uh, on our site. It's really just an un- unstop, you know, a never-ending uh, flow of Torah. Now, I, I was speaking with you before the show, and I didn't even realize that you had made Aliyah, so you actually handled this remotely. I, I imagine you probably heard uh, a buzz that uh, we had a little gathering about uh, Judaism and the Internet <laughs> here uh, last summer. Uh, do you have any thoughts from, from the point of view of someone who manages a Torah content website about the Asifa and the place of, of Torah content online in our lives? <laughs> That's a very loaded question. Um, I mean, obviously, um, you know, if you ask me my opinion, I think it's clear that I believe that the Torah, the Internet can be used for good things. Uh, that's what I do. Um, it's, it's a very complicated question. I think there's a lot of points that they made that are very valid in terms of education, in terms of making sure uh, we're on top and aware of what uh, our families are doing on the Internet. Um, I, I think that uh, there's amazing opportunities that are available um, to people that really, you know, there's some people that maybe don't need the internet to learn Torah, and for those people, uh, I, I don't want to push them to use the internet if they don't want to. It is not something that we, you know, should be uh, encouraging or um, uh, demanding other people to to be comfortable with. But for those people that are using the internet on a regular basis, which I think is a majority of our community, um, I think that we, what we're offering is. Um, just a natural extension of of uh, what this technology offers us. Um, I, I think it's uh, it's a valuable resource that unless you've had a yeshiva education, you're not going to get anywhere else. So I think to to uh, to not take advantage of it is certainly going to limit you uh, if you don't have those opportunities in your home community. Last question. You've been speaking about getting a yeshiva education, listening to the Smicha Shurim and other things. Uh, they don't actually have degree granting programs available through through YU Torah yet, do they? Uh, no, I mean, I think it's clear that there's a, uh, a very big difference between listening to the shirim and uh, actually sitting with the teacher, with the rebbe, with the the magid shir, uh and experiencing the shir uh, and the the, uh, the Torah the Torah uh, dialogue live. So, what we offer is a fantastic resource. Um, I don't want to, you know, uh, I don't want to give off the impression that it's an ex- it's an, uh, substitute for the real thing. Um, I think if you really want to take it to the next level, um, I think that there's no substitute for being in a regular shear, being with a, uh, a live magid shear who you can interact with and, and experience with. Um, and so what we offer is the next best thing because, unfortunately, reality is what it is, and we are not all able to do that. Um, but uh, so we, we give a, uh, the same taste but I don't think it's the same. Uh, uh, you can't really you can't really compare it to being in a special program or any issue program, unfortunately. I like the way you put it, though. The next best thing to being there. <laughs> I want to thank you for your time. I think it's a uh, it's an important point that people don't realize how much Torah there is on the internet and how many wonderful websites there are. And I want to thank you for your uh, for the ability, for the opportunity to uh, to uh, share your share that with your viewers. Thank you. My name is Jack Abramowitz, and I'm from OUTorah.org. I've been speaking with Rabbi Robert Shurer from YUTorah.org. Check it out. It's not just for YU students and alumni. That's YUTorah.org, and I'll see you next time on Torah on the Web. Welcome to a series of kosher tidbits, which will examine various aspects of keeping a kosher home. 
These presentations are based on a series of seminars originally given in Congregation Ahavas Israel in Passaic, New Jersey in early 2011, dedicated to the memory of Mrs. Kathy Cummins, Zichrona Livraka. The OU expresses its appreciation to the Marada Asra of this congregation, Harav Ron Yitzchak Eisenman, for allowing the seminars to be posted on the OU website. In this installment, we will discuss some of the products that require no kosher certification and the guidelines for preserving the kashris of one's kitchen when the housekeeper is a nachris. Chazal tell us that a food which is unfit for human consumption is no longer viewed as food in the eyes of the halacha. As such, it loses its status as non-kosher. The standard is somewhat more rigorous when it comes to kashrus for Passover, but that is not our concern now. This principle has several practical ramifications for the kosher homemaker. For example, brand new pre-soaped sponges, oven cleanser, detergents, and soaps do not require kosher certification. That notwithstanding, some do have a custom to wash dishes exclusively with kosher-certified cleansers. Some Poiski maintain that toothpaste and mouthwash are unfit for human consumption and hence do not need kosher certification. Other Poiski have a different understanding of unfitness, and they forbid uncertified toothpaste and mouthwash. Each person should consult their own Orthodox rabbi. That roll of aluminum foil you see on the supermarket shelf may indeed have come in contact with a non-kosher substance during manufacture, but it is burned up before the roll of foil is packaged and shipped out. On the other hand, a disposable aluminum foil pan may indeed have non-kosher residue even after it leaves the factory. For this reason, Rabbi Yisrael Belsky holds that it is ideal to use only those disposable aluminum foil pans that are kosher certified. At the same time, if kosher certified pans are not readily available, Rav Belsky maintains that one is permitted to use non-certified pans and one is not even obligated to wash them before use. Parchment paper is often used when baking. Only the kosher certified varieties should be used, as parchment paper may be coated with animal derivatives. Many Jewish homes employ a nochris as a maid, even if only for a few hours a week. This arrangement raises a number of kashris questions. The halacha is concerned that when she is left alone, she may render certain foods and utensils non-kosher or exchange kosher ones for non-kosher or both. For example, if she is responsible for cooking, there is a concern that she may use her employer's utensils for her personal non-kosher food or for mixing the employer's dairy and meat products. The employer needs to lay down very specific guidelines about the use of utensils. On top of that, the employer needs to generate mirtas, Mirtas refers to a fear of being discovered in the act of violating a kitchen rule. When ensuring the kashras of the utensils with mirtas, the mirtas, the fear, has to be genuine. For example, if the nachris knows that the lady of the house goes out to a class every Monday from 3 to 5, there is no mirtas for those two hours. 
Or, if the maid's employers always forgive her for kashrus violations, there will be no true mirtas. Anachrus's fear of discovery has to be real at all times. If the nachris is left alone with meat, there is a fear that she will exchange it for non-kosher meat if that exchange would benefit her in some way. Steps must be taken to preserve the meat's kosher status. One way to do so is to seal the meat in a way that would be very difficult for her to reproduce. In such cases, the employer will know if she broke the seal. Of course, if the factory seal on the meat is very difficult to reproduce, the Nachrus's employer need do nothing to the unopened packages. When assessing whether the exchange would benefit her in some way, the employer needs to be brutally honest with himself and not seek out leniencies that are poorly predicated. Another way to preserve the kashris of the meat is to instill mirtas in the Nachrus. Explain to her when she may or may not handle the meat in the house, if ever. Then, ensure that there is a constant fear of the discovery of protocol violations. What we have said about meat also applies to fish whose scales have been removed. One of the halachos of kosher wine and grape juice is the capacity of a nakri to render them non-kosher merely by physical contact, as defined by the halachic system. However, there is a concept known as yayin mevushal. Mevushal means cooked. If wine and grape juice were cooked during the process of kosher manufacture, it is considered cooked mevushal. The required cooking temperature is the subject of debate among contemporary poskim. Once a kosher wine or grape juice was cooked during the process of manufacture, Contact with a nachri or nachris cannot render them non-kosher. However, even when wines and grape juices are cooked, we need to prevent an exchange of kosher wine and grape juice for non-kosher versions. With respect to the concern for exchanges, the sealing and the mirtas we discussed earlier are applicable and helpful as well. It is important to realize that once the process of manufacture is finished, cooking the wine and the grape juice are of no help, halachically speaking. It's worth noting that a nachri delivery boy traveling alone with kosher food is no different than a nachris maid working alone in a house with kosher food. Kaviat emptor, let the kosher food shopper beware. Another area of concern when employing a nachris housekeeper is the prohibition on bishul akum. There are certain foods that Chazal forbade if cooked or baked by a nachri without the involvement of someone who is not a nachri. Chazal, of course, elucidate very specific parameters with respect to the type of heating, the kind of food, and the nature of the involvement of the non-nachri. Chazal instituted these halachos to prevent nisue ta'arovet. According to Ashkenazi practice, any food heated by a nachri, is permissible as long as someone who is not a nachri ignited the flame. Therefore, it is imperative to tell the nachri's maid that she is not allowed to turn on the stove, oven, broiler, etc., etc. To be sure, there are foods which do not require this restriction. 
However, we do not want to rely on the maid to draw these fine halachic distinctions. It is far smarter to set up a rule that covers all situations. When you want to eat something heated up by the nachris maid, make sure that it was you or your family that turned on the heat. In our next installment, we will, God willing, discuss Tevilas Kalim, ritual immersion of utensils, and we will conclude with some miscellaneous aspects of keeping a kosher home. Hi, this is uh, Rabbi Steve Berg, wrapping up for Jewish Reaction. I want to thank you so much for being with us here today, leading into uh, Shabbos, Parshas Barachas, which should be an incredibly meaningful, spiritual, uplifting, awesome uh, beginning to our year. We want to wish everyone uh, real Hatzlacha with their new beginning. Thank you so much, and we look forward to speaking to you next week.